Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to 99.94, the sound of cricket. Download our app for all our podcasts and commentary. Our shows include Red Inca and Double Century, which are hosted by me, plus shows on the West Indies, England, South Africa, Sri Lanka, and India. You can find them all via our social media at 9994DM or by searching in your podcast or YouTube places for the name of your team and 99.94, where we talk cricket. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber, and this show is part of the 99.94 Network. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. So we're going live on YouTube for the first time, so come and subscribe if that's your thing and you can line up and ask questions. Or if you definitely want your question asked, you can either use the Super Chat or you can get in touch beforehand uh, via Patreon by being a Patreon member. And do you know who did that? Will did that. And he says, are we still in the pace playing pandemic? And if so, why, when do you think it will end? Uh, this year, the average for seam bowlers has gone up to about 29, just over 29. I'd say that's on the low end of normal. Um, uh, so for the pace playing pandemic, that's quite high. Uh, previous years have certainly been uh, in the pace playing pandemic, I think as low as 25, 26. So 29 is a big jump on up on that. But it's certainly nothing compared to, you know, some of the numbers we were seeing uh, in, in the era before uh, when everyone was making runs. Uh, so I would say it's possible that batters are working out the wobble ball uh, and they're starting to get on top of it a little bit more. Um that's just a guess, though. Uh, maybe there's been a lot of tests in Pakistan, <laughs> which could also play a big part. Uh, but but at the moment, I, I I wouldn't declare it finished. But I would say that I think players have worked this out, and that that's what batters do, of course. They, you know, um, a new fad happens. Uh, whether I mean the wrong end is one of the best ones ever, of course. When it, through the what early 1920s, uh, or maybe maybe even earlier than that, there are critic writers saying that the wrong end is ruining the game. And uh, it doesn't ruin the game anymore. Some people still can't pick it. Some people have trouble playing it and all those sorts of things. But it's not just an automatic wicket the way that it certainly was probably from, what, 1906, let's say, um, until probably 1920, 25-ish region. So that is to start to work things out. Um, And and perhaps they have with the wobble ball as well. I'm not sure. But it's a good question. 
And I would say at the moment, it does seem to be trending uh, towards uh, the fact that perhaps they're working out how to play pace a little bit more. Satchmo asks, how many of the Football World Cup matches in Qatar have you watched? Uh, did you enjoy them? Um, it might, my, my kids really don't like football. <laughs> Uh, they both played it. The two or two older boys, young girls, a little bit too young to play anything yet. But uh, two older boys both played it. Don't like football. Um, the you know the game that I'm ready to sit down and watch and doesn't clash with any cricket is quite uh, you know is usually in the evening when they want to watch TV. We watched. A few, I watched most of the Australian games. Perhaps all of the Australian games. Um, my wife probably watched a few of the England games. Um, I'm trying to think who else. There's a couple of other teams that I, you know, I, I like. I like Japan was a team I saw a little bit of. Yeah, I saw some good games. Uh, saw some terrible games. Same as any World Cup, really. Uh, some mismatches and some uh, close games and some underdogs. I, I like the the start of it when it seemed to me that uh, I, it really seemed to follow on from the the Greek World Cup where we had underdogs everywhere. I um, I enjoyed that that side of it. Obviously, the whole Qatar side's a bit nonsensical. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, so I have been following, uh, you know, it slightly politically from that point of view, but I've watched a few games. I must admit when the games weren't as regular, I didn't always know when they were being played. So when there was just a game on almost any time of the day, <laughs> you know, uh, prime time in Qatar, uh, I probably watched more of it. And as the finals have gone on, I'll probably watch less, which maybe is different than everyone else. I'm not sure. Uh, but I'm not a big football fan. World Cup is one of the few things I would normally watch a lot more of which I suppose I have actually watched more than I normally would. James says, if batters rely on pattern matching and bowlers, barring the odd absolute unplayable Jaffa, rely on disrupting pattern matching, how did the best batters find the middle ground between using too little pattern matching, therefore effectively facing each ball as if it was their first one, and too much pattern matching, therefore allowing the bowlers to dictate their perception of what's coming next? Okay, so this is really tricky because... If I said to a batter, you you know, you use um, pattern matching or what's the common term in sports science now? Is it chunking? I think it's chunking. Um, they would look at me like I'm an idiot uh, because a lot of this is subconscious. So we could test it and we can show that it exists. But for a, bat for a, for a batter, it's not particularly easy for them to explain. Uh, you know, I've gone very deep, you know, late night conversations with players to try and, you know, dive as close to the truth as possible. And... I can't remember which coach this was. I want to say it was Duncan Fletcher, but he he talked about the letterbox with the players, uh, with the batters quite a lot. Yeah, which is basically almost trying to, if you look at something in the distance right now and then you want to focus on something in, you sort of create like an almost like a smaller part of um, it that you're looking at. And that was something that they practiced a lot with the England batters. Uh, sorry, I shouldn't say England. Uh, everyone that Duncan Fletcher, I think, worked with was something, I think it was Duncan Fletcher, anyway, uh, that they worked on. And I've heard other players talk of in similar terms of that sort of stuff. The other pattern matching and everything that you're talking about, it, it, it happens subconsciously. So from that perspective, I don't think it's something that batters can turn on or off. Separate to that, if you're facing a ball over 80 miles an hour, you don't have a choice. You have to, you have to do that every ball because... Uh, if you tried to play the ball on its merits, fresh out of its hand, you wouldn't be able to do that. You have to use all the little tips that you can get, you know, from the fields, from the pitch, from the run up, uh, from the, you know, wrist position, the first three meters of the ball. All those things have to happen every ball. This is why I personally don't think bowlers use the crease as much as they should. So I think bowlers should be, you know, bowling from close to the stumps, wide of the stumps, 
up on the line back a meter or two every now and again to every little bit of disruption um, can help um, all those sorts of things, you know, sometimes coming wider on, on, on the action, uh, you know, just to do that. But to be fair, all of those things that you're doing, a batter should still be subconsciously picking up a lot of those. So I'm not sure there is that much disruption that a bowler can do. But I mean, the, the, if you were looking for the best one of a bowler trying to, you know, um, uh, struggle with with the patterns, it's probably twofold. It's probably Sun or Narayan running in with the ball behind his back or uh, Sekunda Raza now running in with the ball up his bum. Or it's Benny Howe copying the reverse swing tactic but doing it for every ball. Even though that's creating a new pattern, uh, that is that is causing a lot of problems. And it's really interesting when you talk about this sort of stuff. Um, I just released a podcast on uh, Sean Tate's spell recently. Uh, and Sean Tate is obviously a fantastic uh, a specimen for that because he bowls so fast. So you need some pattern recognition. And it's not so much in the podcast or even in the original article that I wrote. But I remember talking to players and it was so interesting that I can't remember if it was Phil Jarks was saying to me that he felt that Tate put the ball behind his back at a certain point, which completely threw Jarks because it wasn't what Brett Lee or Joel Bakhtar would do. Um, and it was a twist of his body. And then there was another batter who was saying he felt like Sean Tate always kept the ball in view of him and he could always see it. So you have Sean Tate, which is a slightly different action than, than we're used to in Test Match Cricket. Not quite Lassif Malinga, um, you know, or, or Murali or someone like that, but it has a few kinks in it and is a little bit different. Has had almost the Wacker Eunice like torso at a certain point, but it was a slinger, almost like a combination of, I don't know, Wacker Eunice and Tomo in some ways. And, and that threw certain batters. And I'm, I did another piece, and I don't know if I've uh, done a video on this yet, but about how eyes work in cricket. And uh, uh, Dr. Cheryl, uh, um, Cheryl um, Caldwell, Calder, I've forgotten her name, but the, the um, South African um, sports um, scientist, she, when I was talking to her, she was talking about, I think it was Saeed Amir um, Sohail, it was certainly a top order player from Pakistan, who uh, had real trouble with picking up uh, Murali because Murali had a different action. So even though he wasn't a quicker bowler. So... I think a lot of that stuff, that that sort of pattern uh, disruption, comes from a more a normal uh, technique. Uh, well, sorry, a, 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 a non-normal technique, and it, it's certainly something I've talked a lot about with Trent Woodhill before. Of me and Trent Woodhill have this theory of in T Twenty cricket, you could probably get away with a bowler with a weird action, um, a new new bowler with a weird action every year at, in T Twenty cricket, and you might get I don't know, let's say seven or eight games out of them just because um, it, it, it stuffs up the pattern recognition that you're talking about, you know, and having talked to uh, players who face Jack Shantry for the first time, for instance, um, uh, you know, um, other players with, uh, well, actually, Patel is another really good example of this. It doesn't, his action doesn't look that weird, but the ball comes out in a, a different way and acts slightly differently for the bat. So there is that, there is that pull in the, uh, pull, that push in the pool, but I don't think much of it is done consciously. And the one thing I remember about the Murley conversation is how they had to retrain uh, the batter. Uh, sorry, I've, I've forgotten who, who it was, but they had to retrain the batter in what to look for when he faced that new bowler. I would say that most batters don't even think to do that um, just because it hasn't really become a conversation for them so far or a way that they're thinking about um, uh, the game. Uh, but really good question, James. Surf says... 
Have you or anyone crunched any numbers on batters declining uh, towards the end of their careers, especially when there was a sustained period of form slump and then a little resurgence before another form slump and a eventual retirement? Yeah, there's a pattern. This isn't just in cricket. You can certainly see it in cricket, but um, this isn't just a uh, something that you see in cricket. Essentially, what age does is it robs you of your consistency, not so much your peaks. So... I think I did a piece on MS Dhoni about this when he played a couple of good innings when he was clearly beyond his best. And everyone's like, oh, look, he's back. And obviously he wasn't, right? And and that's, you know, it, his overall numbers suggest that he's not back. But he still has the ability to do that. It, it might take you from your very peakiest peaks, but you should still be able to play a great innings, uh, you know, well into your late 30s or into your early 40s. What you can't do you know, very rare. And obviously we have had players like this, uh, Gooch, uh, Bradman. I'm trying to think of what Misbah's figures were like or Yunus Khan's figure. Even Yunus Khan probably didn't have the same level at the end. But, you know, we have had players, you know, play on to very old ages, but you see that their overall average drops. And that's generally what happens. The ability to still produce doesn't disappear. The ability to do it game after game seems to. We, it's easier to read in batters. I'd say in bowlers, you probably get put on the scrap heap a little bit quicker, but with batters, we keep them around. Um, and you see, you know, Ricky Ponting making that double century against Pakistan uh, towards the end of his career. You read his book and you realize he knew he was gone at that point, but he still had the ability to make a test double hundred. And so, so within that, uh, you get the idea that they can still replicate their skills. The big thing that we're seeing now is perhaps through you know, Serena Williams, Tom Brady, the tennis players, um, LeBron James, these sort of athletes, is the ability to keep a fairly high peak. Maybe not your absolute peak, but close enough to it. And then, uh, sorry, a fairly good consistent peak, I should say, but still be able to go up when you need it for a major tournament or a major game or, or anything else. That's basically um what i think cricket is going to be able to move to as well i thought ab devilliers was the, the the best candidate for that he i think just didn't want to play anymore maybe the the best way of putting it uh you know the going through it the aches the pains the getting yourself ready everything else perhaps if cricket was at a slightly different position he might have gone on uh, i don't know if you ever read my article actually um but it'd be interesting if he had read the article um and what he was thinking at the time, because I could see how he was making enough money to to use the advancements of sports science to be able to do that. But that's essentially what your people are trying to do with LeBron James and Tom Brady and Serena Williams and all these sorts of people. It's it's make sure that they don't have the you know the wild um, you know sort of lower consistency with the odd peak. They're trying to make sure that they're still at their their closer level. But you know the, the old adage that age is undefeated uh, exists for a reason. Uh, Will Cooling says, Ben folks is fucked. <laughs> uh, Brooks is doing so well, and the England bowlers are becoming fit again. It means that Bairstow probably takes the gloves when he's fit. Yeah, it's an interesting one, because I would assume now they will ask Bairstow, because of everything that's happened with Johnny Bairstow, I think almost, he's now earned his position in any format of cricket that he wants for England. And I think going forward, the best... Um, way of handling this is literally just saying, Johnny, what do you want to do? If Johnny wants the gloves back, I think he will take them. I I, I don't know if he does want them back or not. Um, uh, so I, I suppose that would be the, the, uh, the hedging on Ben folks. Um, I did feel that England certainly wanted, um, I feel that McCullum is someone who 
gave up the gloves for BJ Watling. I think that's an interesting part of it. And I certainly think that Ben Stokes seems to rate wicket keeping. But yes, I, I would think if you're the natural progression of the way they're playing wouldn't be having Ben Folks in that side. It would be having another attacking player um, and probably having Bearstow take the gloves. I think that makes more sense uh, to me based on everything we've seen so far. Um, but, but, you know, perhaps because McCallum is a wicket keeper, there'll be I don't know, a pullback. If, if that makes sense. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a Raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live because you shouldn't have to change teams even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. Aditya says, you've spoken a lot about India and Delhi uh, turning part into an anchor. Do you think that India did something similar with Odi, uh, Odi, Dhoni in ODIs? Uh, I was just looking at his numbers um, till the 2007 World Cup and his strike rate was in the high, high 90s and past that for the rest of his career, it was in the mid 80s. Now, me and Kartikeya had a conversation recently. I think Kartikeya had Dean Jones in the top, uh, top ODI player top ODI batter in Australian cricket history. And I was a little bit surprised because, and, and you know, I grew up with Dean Jones um, as one of my heroes. I'm from Victoria. I could go and get his book for you. It's right behind me. Um, and I was a little bit surprised because I think there was something that me and Dan Bredick noticed. And it was, this is before the days of stats guru, but probably tells you what me and Dan Bredick ended up working in cricket is we both noticed a really clear slowdown with Dean Jones. He got to the world's best batter in T20 cricket, probably went beyond Viv. Uh, and me and Dad was probably uh, on the wane at that point as well. Um, Desmond Haynes was probably, you know, around that point. But Dean Jones certainly went to number one in the rankings. But also, it was hard to say he wasn't the best uh, one-day player batter in the world at that point. But he did it by playing in a way that uh, is very similar to what we saw with someone like KP, this incredible freedom. Uh, in fact, he's a very similar player that KP, you know, tall, uh, hits the ball across the line, uh, takes a lot of calculated risks, maybe is the best way of putting it. Uh, game theory batting is probably the way that I, I suppose is the best way of putting it. And so he got to number one in the world with this incredible record. And then if you have a look, uh, he basically keeps the average at a fairly similar rate, but the strike rate drops. It's, uh, there's a couple of years where I think his strike rate goes down to maybe high 60s, low 70s. And he exploded in one-day cricket. And it's something that I've seen a lot of um, uh, in, in in cricket, that you see these guys come in and they explode, and then they come back to earth. And I think there's a few different reasons why it happens. I think one is that once you get to that level like Dean Jones, where everyone knows where you want to hit the ball, I think there's a natural slowdown at times just because uh, the ball's not in the position that you want it to be in uh, as much anymore and and bowlers naturally sort of progress away from your hitting zones i also think that there is a thing that some players do once they're in the team they've got a lot more to lose than when they're trying to break in and and make their mark and i think we see that quite a lot and and i don't know with Dhoni what what the situation is i think with part what you're talking about is something a lot different because we're, we're not talking about a small change um or anything like that and we also have coaches talking about it publicly, about them wanting more runs from him. That's a little bit different, I think, than what we saw from Dhoni and Jones. 
it's something I've seen for a very long time. You also, to be fair, see this in test match cricket sometimes. You know, a player will come in, uh, someone like David Boone or Michael Clark come to mind. I'm trying to think of someone else that, that's a bit like that, where they play a lot of shots early on, and then over time they turn themselves into more of a grafter, more of a consistent scorer. Some of that is their game naturally um, uh, you know, being more rounded and, 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 and then getting older and, you know, just putting a higher price on their wicket. Some of it is that bowlers don't bowl to them in the same way anymore. They don't have to make their mark by attacking as well. Um, so it is an interesting one. I would think that Dhoni falls into more of that than anything else. But I do think that Dhoni basically was Kyron Pollard when he starts. And I think by the end of his career, he's Michael Bevan. And, and being that we know how much he thinks about the game and, and everything else, I would say these are, there's no doubt that the bowling played a part. Perhaps the pressure of you know of consistently making runs for India played a part. But I would say that he made a decision, and and I don't know exactly why, but um, I'm sure there's a reason why. Uh, Patrick says, if you're given Pat Cummins right now, asked him to turn into the best T20 version of himself, what would you tell him? Teach him? Yeah, I it, I find that really interesting because I don't think there is another Patrick Cummins like T20 bowler. Well, there isn't another Patrick Cummins out there. So you've got bowlers like Jofra and Bumrah, who I think through their actions um, cause a little bit more chaos um, rather than just, you know, a, Pat Cummins has like a, quite a standard action. So they have a natural advantage in T20 cricket that perhaps Cummins does not have. Also, also I would assume both of them are releasable from a higher height, although I haven't seen that directly. So... I'm not sure who his nearest neighbor is. So let's say I was working with him and I had access to all the Crick Info, um, Crick Info, all, all the um, uh, Cricket Australia Hawkeye data. I think the first thing I would do is I would look for a nearest neighbor. Is there another T20 bowler who bowls at roughly the same pace from a same position um, uh, release um, that doesn't swing, you know, that swings the ball at, you know, at a similar amount to him and everything else? If that was the case, I'd be looking, hopefully there'd be two or three people. I'm not sure there is. And then I'd be looking at building uh, back up from there of what could work. The other thing that I would do is I think I would look at him being more of a swing bowler in T20 cricket. So we know he can swing the ball and we also know he can swing the ball both ways. In test match cricket, bowling that wobble ball at 90 miles an hour at the top of off stump is absolutely fine. In T20 cricket, we know that the wobble ball doesn't quite last as long, uh, that the ball doesn't last as long. But the one thing that we do know is that, and we've seen this with uh, Boovie and Ashdeep Singh and Mark Adair, is that if you can swing the ball both ways early on, it makes you very hard to line up. Pat Cummins has that ability. And I would have thought at his pace, if he had the ability to do that for two overs, that would actually give him a role definition in T20 cricket. And at the moment, he doesn't have any role definition. The only other thing I would think about for him is... I. I've always said this, and the numbers no longer back it up. They used to back it up, that he was much better bowling in the middle overs. And I like him being a middle overs enforcer in a, in a sort of Lockie Ferguson, Liam Plunkett, you know, Umran Malik type role, bowling cross seam into the pitch, hard lengths, um, and doing that. And, and, and I think that if you're going to pick him, I would pick him more for that. The other thing, of course, is to say to him, if you want to do this, what do you think your best balls are? And to literally go back through all the footage of his best deliveries in T20 cricket. So there's a way of doing this with the video uh, where you can actually, you just pick uncomfortable, right? And anytime a batter is uncomfortable against a bowler, you get, you know, in, in Cummins' place, I know, like 2,000 videos, right? 
Um, and so you, obviously you look at that just in T20 cricket and try and look if there's any patterns that you have uh, to your bowling. Because at the moment, I just don't think he's thinking about T20 cricket correctly. And there's no obvious reason why he shouldn't be good at this with his pace and his skill. Um, but he doesn't have an identity. I don't think there's a particular time of the game where you want to bowl him at the moment. And he's gone away from what I thought was his main strength of bowling in the middle. And perhaps that doesn't work anymore. And perhaps that doesn't work with the Australian team. And also, I, him and Lockie Ferguson in the one team at KKR never made any sense to me because I would have thought both of them should have been in that role. Uh, Cam says, uh, plenty of people are saying Boland and now Nisa uh, are locked to start in the Ashes, assuming everyone else is fit and Cummins is playing as captain. Who out of um, Stark and Hazelwood are you dropping for Boland Nisa? I, I think going ahead, I've got no problem with Stark coming in and out the side for probably Boland. Um, uh, although, you know, Nisa with the batting is quite interesting. Um, I mean, I mean, Hazelwood is playing in the ashes. Um, undoubtedly, he's an incredible bowler. Um, I think they probably didn't bowl him enough last time. If they're going to do, if they're going to do platoon, and Cummins is going to play in all five tests. Um, then you know I and and you know have a similar situation they had with Pattinson and and Siddle um, in that other Ashes. Um, I've got no problem with that as well. But I would say that Cummins will probably will play the majority of tests. I would hope that Hazelwood will play at least four of the tests, um, and then Stark, Boland, and these are different pitches, different you know lineups, uh, different situations. Stark could be a really interesting one if Basball continues to be real even when the ball's moving around because of his ability um, to bowl in limited overs cricket. Uh, you know, Boland and Nisa might struggle a little bit more in those uh, situations. But, yeah, I, I would have thought that what they're getting to now is more of a platoon than anything else. Um, I've got one last question from Will Cooling here, uh, but just a message from Muku. I only have about eight questions here. I think there should be more questions that should have been loaded into the system. Uh, but I'll just I'll check that anyway. Will says, how surreal is it to see a mate like George Dabell talk to Parliament on such a serious issue like he did this week? Uh, how do you as a friend colleague manage supporting someone uh, when they stumble into such heavy shit? Well, I don't know if you know, but I was asked to go and speak to uh, Parliament in... Well, actually, it wasn't Parliament, was it? I, I don't know what the difference between what I did and what George did. Um, but I had to go and speak at um, at an event uh, with politicians questioning me, um, 2015, maybe when the film came out. It's weird to be involved with it. And also, it's performative. I can't see... It, it's hard to say no to those sorts of things. Um, and, you know, I've had individual politicians from around the world want to talk to me about issues with cricket administration and, and, and um, you know, things to do with cricket before. It's great to talk to them, but... At the same stage, I've never seen anything directly come out of it. Um, I haven't talked to George about, uh, you know, uh, what what went on this week. But yeah, it is. It's a it's a very weird um, a position to be in um, from that perspective. You know, especially for someone like George. I think George is a real journalist, journalist, and I do think that there is an element of um, what's the best way of putting it. Um, I think there is an element of him not enjoying being the story um, from that perspective. You know, there, there are some journalists that, that think about things differently and, you know, uh, some, some, you know, especially as a feature writer uh, like me, you sort of become the story more often. Um, so, yeah, I, I haven't talked to George about it, but, yeah, it's um, 
I think one of the weird things about journalism in general, uh, or sports journalism in general, that I don't think gets enough play is that a lot of people don't understand how we all work for different places. So obviously George and I used to be colleagues and we're still friends, um, but we all work for different places. And so it's, it's almost like there's a healthy rivalry between it all, but there's also, we're doing different jobs. We're in different places. All these different things happen uh, within sports journalism. And so I sometimes wonder if too many of us, especially in the smaller publications or the, in my case, the now self publication, sometimes we end up in silos a little bit too quickly. And I'm not really sure there's a way to handle any of that, but, um, you know, hopefully, uh, uh, I haven't heard anything that George needs any support at the moment. He's been going through this for a long time, but when you do get into the spotlight a little bit more, things do change. So, uh, it's, it, the whole thing's quite interesting, um, that it's ended up in that place. Uh, Josh says, who is in worse shape leading into the Pakistan, New Zealand series, uh, New Zealand lost their mojo and a missing bolt. Jameson, um, I miss it. Charles de Gaulle then. Uh, Grand Home Designs, I think his nickname is. Um, and meanwhile, Pakistan's only chance of a home win series seems to be asking Senator for help. Uh, not sure that joke plays with Pakistan um, as much as it does with other people. Um, yeah, it's the whole Pakistan thing. I've talked about this before. I think I might have done an episode with Barrett recently that you looked at the World Test Championship and you're like, even if they play 80% of their best you thought they had a really good chance of qualifying for that. They've completely done themselves over. Um, bad pitches, but also just bad cricket. Um, you know, going into some of these teams, uh, into some of these games, which is sort of random selections. Bowling injuries haven't really helped. I I think too often to me, they look like they're a batter short. Um, sort of rotating through this sort of second tier level of spinners. There's a lot of issues with Pakistan at the moment. Yeah, New Zealand's interesting. I, I wonder how New Zealand come into this series, as in, do do they see themselves as, I mean, obviously all teams see themselves as a legitimate chance of winning, but, you know, are they looking at this and thinking we are a realistic chance of, of winning this particular game? Um, I'd really like to, uh, I'd really like to be a fly on the wall and see how they come, because I think if I was New Zealand, even without some of those players, as you say, I think I'd be hitting the ground thinking, well, the way the Pakistan's been playing, maybe we only win one test, but we should we should think of ourselves as a really realistic chance of coming away with that. We, we're a good, solid team, and we are going up against um, a team that seems to be going through a mini-crisis. I think now Pakistan's won one of their last seven. If you go back, they've won four of their last 11 or 12, um, and that includes another loss against West Indies as well. Uh, their last good series is really against Bangladesh. Um, in the last two years, I think they've had two good series against South Africa and Bangladesh. It really has been a lean time for them in test cricket. So I think you could probably put a lot of pressure on them. Um, and, and I also think there's probably, maybe political pressure is the wrong thing, but Ramiz Raja is under pressure and it would be interesting to see what kind of wickets we see for that. Um, it, it should be a really fascinating series. Um, it would be played in a slightly different way than the England one was, of course. Uh, thanks, everyone, on Patreon. Remember, if you want to get, uh, make sure that I get to your questions, I go to Patreon. Uh, we had a couple of early ones come in. Oren says, I'm really enjoying what you're doing with 99.94. Thank you very much. Uh, my question is, do you think that England's recent success due to Baz and Stokes, oh, oh, okay, will cause English counties to think the first-class system is perfectly f uh, fit for purpose? And, um, um, and what do you think the damage... Um, 
do you think that could damage England long term? So, no, I don't think anyone's going to think that the first class system is fit for purpose. I mean, the first class system was set up so that rich people from various parts of England could have cricket teams around. <laughs> um, it's a archaic system for the first, what, 70 years of test cricket. It was probably better than test cricket, or at least as strong quite often. The next, what, 30 years of test cricket, um, so post-World War II, still very, very strong, um, you know, for teams like Pakistan, West Indies, probably Australia, um, he, uh, maybe India as well, really good at developing their talent as a sort of secondary school, finishing school um, type situation. From then on in, obviously, you know, cricket has changed quite a bit. It would be hard to look at first-class cricket now. There's no way you would design it to make test cricket is the way that it currently is. And I don't think there's anything in the baseball situation um, that changes that. If anything, you know, baseball is almost looking at it in a completely different way again. Um, but no, I don't think, I don't, th I wouldn't think anyway that there's any danger of, uh, of that being the problem. I mean, you could make a very clear argument that the only reason we have this style of cricket from England at the moment is partially because county cricket wasn't producing um, standard test cricketers. So they had to try something a bit wacky. Sammy says, who are some of the best ambidextrous cricketers, bat left, bowl right, or vice versa, in the history of the game, in your opinion? Oh, well, well, this is a tricky one because when you say bat left, bowl right, if you bat left-handed and you bowl right-handed, you can make a very clear argument, Sammy, that actually what you're saying is that um, perhaps they should have been batting left-handed all along. It's possible in cricket specifically, we stand on the wrong side of the ball. So let, so what is right-handed in golf and baseball and tennis is actually the opposite in cricket. Um, and, you know, I know a lot of people believe that. Um, I've talked to some sports scientists who believe that. Uh, I made my kids into left-handers uh, based on that assumption. Um, sadly for me, it uh, turned out one of them was a left-hander. So now I almost need to reverse reverse him. Um, but yeah, so I do, uh, from that perspective, the bat left, bowl right is a really, really common thing. And I think that sort of tells you a little bit um, that it's probably a little bit more up in the air. The opposite, I think, is slightly more interesting. Um, uh, Michael Clark comes to mind, who bowled left arm and batted right. Um, but yeah, I've, uh, there's there's quite a few good ones, but I'm trying to think of anyone specific. Um who comes to mind. Uh, one, one of the more interesting things I've found is that it's very rare to find a left-handed batter who bowls left on medium pace. So Brennan Nash uh, was one. I think there's another one of recent times I'm forgetting as well. But it's really rare to find that combination, uh, which I find really interesting when it comes to how these things play, you know, uh, genetics, um, how cricket is coached and all that, you know, there must be reasons why um, that doesn't happen as much, but, but yeah, but I'm not massively uh, surprised um, at batters batting left-handed and then bowling the opposite um, in that way. But yeah, I'm not sure if I answered your question, Beth, but if you really want best ambidextrous cricketers, I don't think your question's right. I think your best ambidextrous cricketer, what you're really then looking at is someone who has the ability to either bowl with both arms or throw with both arms. Um, so Ian Harvey and Alan Border both come to mind as people who could, uh, throw with both arms. I am missing someone else that was really obvious then that was on the tip of my tongue. 
Is it Colin Miller who could bowl really good left arm uh, bowling? I don't think he ever used it in a game. Um, I've seen Joffre Archibald with his left arm. I've seen Bo- Joffre Archibald left arm wrist spin um, uh, before. And so I've always wondered uh, if there's a way that we can ever get that into a game. Uh, but yeah, I think that that point of view, I think that's a bit more ambidextrous. I think what we found with batting is that the top hand is maybe slightly more important than anything else. But as someone who has play who can play reverse sweeps not well but i can play them and also was a tennis coach double hand and backhand is a really really interesting uh sort of way of thinking about all this sort of thing of once you go to a double hand and backhand it's almost like you're taking away your backhand shot and you're creating almost like a secondary forehand shot in some ways a more consistent shot than a single backhand shot and if you think about cricket everything is double-handed in that sort of way. Um, and the reason I always talk about the double-handed backhand is because it's also the best way to, if you've ever played tennis and you can play a double-handed backhand, you should be able to play a reverse sweep. But cricket is, because it is a two-handed sport, I, I think that cloudy uh, that clouds up a little bit what you're talking about. But um, if you're looking at, I think, isn't it Sachin Tadulka and Darren Goff both right with their left hands, um, but play cricket with their right hands? Uh, so, yeah, it's really weird. A real aside on this, that there is some basketballers who have trouble with their shots. Um, quite often they tend to be um, shooting with their left hands and something happened when they were young and they started shooting with their left hands and they never learned to shoot with their right hand. And because of that, they do everything else with their right hand and then late at life they get to the NBA and people look at changing their shots. Um, I wonder if this a similar thing sometimes happens in cricket, especially with tailenders, um, and if there's ability to to change it around. I don't know if anyone could ever change, uh, but uh, if you want my best story, when I was twelve, I actually a bit like David Warner wondered if I wasn't batting on the wrong side of the bat. I was such a good hitter of the ball, but for but defensive and technique, I couldn't get right with, with my bottom hand. And I did practice for about three months before, in the end, I just decided that I wanted to hit fours and sixes. <laughs> so we're back to right-handed. Anyway, probably haven't answered your question at all there, Sammy, but thank you very much. Voyas says, uh, do you think we'll start seeing players refusing singles in T20 game? We already have. Uh, due to favorable matchups, we already have. Uh, even though the batter on the other side is a legit batter. Uh, have we seen it for a legit batter? It certainly happened. So yes, boys, in that case, we have seen it. It's a really tricky one because you're playing with the ego of the player at the other end. Uh, and you are building a you know a bit of a weird relationship with them. I have talked to players about this. I think it's one of those things, a bit like retired out, that everyone talks about in T20 cricket and will happen, but hasn't happened as much now. I talked to a player about this who was very good against off-spin, and he had a guy at the other end who was not particularly good against off-spin. He came off, and we had a period where we didn't score particularly well because this guy, I think he hit one boundary, then he missed hit a single. The other guy then faced two dot balls, then got a single. By the time the other guy got back on, the stri- uh, on strike, he hit another boundary. And so we got, was it 10 runs off that over? But it was like the 14th over. We had this guy lined up, uh, and I said, I said to the other batter, if you just face all six balls, don't take the singles, how many boundaries do you think you would have hit? And, you know, and he started to say, you know, I get what you're saying, but you've got to understand that I then have to have the conversation with the guy. He has to admit that he's not very good against offspin. All those sorts of things do play a part. And I, I, I remember a conversation in the David Warner video that we saw. I think it was the T20 we played against the West Indies. And David Warner says to Finch, um, I'll get a bit more active here. This is my matchup, you know? And you hear Finch go, 
oh yeah, this yeah, um, I'll get more active too. And I think Warner was trying to say, just get me on strike and I'll smack this guy. Um, because this is one of my matchups. But I think in Finch's mind, he was like, oh yeah, I'm not scoring very well as well. I better, I better get going as well. I think that still happens a bit too much. Whereas actually maybe the best situation there would have been for Finch to go, do you just want me to feed you? Right? And I wonder how often those conversations are being had um, so far. And I do think it's a, I don't know what the best way of putting it, but I do think it's something that cricket has to, oh, T20 cricket has to get to going ahead. Uh, Swami says, if a bunch of countries can combine to form the West Indies, shouldn't we let India play two test, uh, two teams in international cricket? Just a reminder for everyone who doesn't know, England have had multiple um, countries um, in their team for a long time. It's w- so weird to me that we only ever mention the West Indies. Uh, Ireland do it as well. It, 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 it always bothers me that no one ever mentions that England um, have multiple nations and that, um, uh, that Ireland do. But that's an aside, Swami. Uh, should we let India play two teams in international cricket? Do India want to play two teams in international cricket? Does that help Indian cricket? Is that something that we need? Th- when um, back in the old days, we used to say the same thing about Australia. They probably said the same thing about the West Indies in the 80s. When teams are really good, we say they should have two teams. Um, I'm not sure what, you know, whether that's the case. Uh, it wouldn't be anything that I would uh, want to do. England's women's team has done it before in the first World Cup. Well, England does it all the time, as I said, because they have multiple teams. Uh, yeah, that first World Cup was all over the place, though. There was an international 11 as well. I think it was a young England 11. They were just trying to make up the numbers. I think also, Swami, we've seen a similar thing in um, disabled cricket. I think that's the case where we've had multiple teams from one country before. I just don't see any need, need for it uh, in in men's team, uh, in, in top level of men's cricket at the moment, if we're being honest. Pranav says, thoughts on Ashwin's batting ability in tests against spinners. Would he be amongst your top 10 or 15 best batters against spinners? That's really good. In fact, someone's asked me about this before. I, I need to go through and have another look. Uh, because I think the last time I had a really good look against um, spin batting, uh, was probably just before, it was probably around 2018, 2019, 2020. And obviously cricket has changed quite a bit since then um, and batting has changed. Uh, I don't remember Ashwin being in my elite players of spinning at that time. You, you had at that stage Pajara, Smith, Root, Coley. I'm trying to think if there was anyone else. They're the names that spring to mind with like obscenely high averages against spin. There was a couple of averages of well over 60, 70, 80, over long periods. That, on face value of what I've seen over the last couple of years, I don't know if anyone is still uh, at that level. I'd be surprised if they were. Um, uh, but, yeah, I don't think I don't think Ashwin would be at that level. But I, I think in India, whether it's spin or against pace, I think Ashwin is a legitimate batting candidate. And I think out of India, he's a really handy number eight um, so it's probably, it's almost like he's a number six at home and a number eight away from home, which is probably not as helpful as, as India would want it to be. You'd rather be number seven in both, wouldn't you? Um, although with Jadeja, uh, that, that, that certainly gives them a little bit extra depth, but off the top of my head, that's how I think of him. But I don't just think of it as a spin thing. I do also think of it as a pace thing, but it's a really good question. Um, and I will try and get to it. Um, eventually a couple of other people have asked me on other places as well. Cam says, um, uh, the T20 World Cup viewership numbers are out. Can we get a video related um, to it, like the rise of the T20 figures over the years? And also uh, watched by 2.6 billion people. Um, yeah, I think those were the, was that the online or was that on TV? I can't remember. I, I, I don't, viewership numbers, this aren't my thing. I don't 
massively trust them. Uh, it, so it's not a field that I generally do a lot of work in. So I probably won't uh, look at them. Also, yeah, there, there was that. There was a thread recently about cricket in in the US and about the the audience numbers and everything. And I wonder how many people what qualifies as a view and for how long and all those sorts of things. Um, so I genuinely genuinely stay clear of this sort of stuff. But they looked very healthy from what I could tell. Uh, Vinay says, will a franchise league for Test cricket ever happen? If it does, it will be a, what would you call it? Um, if it does, it will be a independent rebel type league. I can't. Uh, so at the moment, I don't see that coming. We obviously almost had this already before. So it is definitely a possibility. But if you're asking me at the moment, I wouldn't say that this is a, um, a dead set certainty to happen, but it's still a possibility. I think, I, I think there's, I've said this many times before, you do the numbers, there's a lot of money in test cricket and not much of it is currently being earned and that's silly and the best way to do it would be through a league. DM says, is the golden era for New uh, over for New Zealand? Uh, Watling Taylor, DeGrandholm, uh, well, Williamson's um, elbow you could throw in there, Bolt uh, moving on. I would say, you shouldn't say the golden era is over until they start to consistently lose over a longer period, but it would make sense if it was starting to decline from here, yes. Ashley says, um, uh, I don't know whether you were able to watch the casual dominance of Jokic today. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, I, I did. Well, I, 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 with a lot of the NBA games, um, I watched the, uh, the all possessions um, of it. He was incredible on that, by the way. Uh, it was basically a highlight reel, his all possessions. Uh, so I watch a lot of the NBA games that way. I would love for cricket to do that the same. Uh, the ability to watch a test match in half an hour, um, which teams can do, uh, but there's no public way of being able to do that is, is quite annoying. Um, uh, led me to the question of which cricketer has a similar peak to Joker and was still disrespected. I wonder if Callus is Callus that person? I, I mean, I don't think he's disrespected, but if Callus did what he did in a sexier way, looked like he was more eager to bowl, certainly if he came from a slightly bigger market, maybe won a World Cup along the way, what would we say of Callus? I, I mean, I'm more than willing to say that in, in some ways what Sobers did was more remarkable. He did his in a non-batting era. Um, he had to bowl almost double the amount of overs of Callus. Not as good a record, although probably as a seam bowler had a pretty, pretty similar record to Callus would be my guess. It was probably spin where he struggled a little bit more from reports anyway. So is Callus that sort of player uh, with just an incredible top-level peak who didn't quite fit what we were looking for? I mean, Flintoff got more attention at times. And Flintoff, Flintoff's peak was, it was incredible, but it was a camera flash. And you look at his overall numbers and it's ridiculous. Yuvshan said, can a bowler control the wobble ball to swing in a particular direction? The only player that I'm aware of that has, there's a lot of nonsense about the wobble ball. There are people who tell you that no bowler can uh, tell you which way it's going to go. There are some people who say that you can only ever get it to go one way. Jimmy Anderson definitely seems to get it both ways. The wobble ball shouldn't swing, but there have certainly been wobble balls of Jimmy Anderson's that seem to have swung a little bit. But as far as I'm aware, I don't know how much that, I don't know how much of that is control. Um, but uh, if you're asking uh, if a bowler can control the wobble ball to seem in a particular direction, because that's obviously actually more what the wobble ball does, it, it seems that if you're a bowl outswingers, the wobble ball naturally comes in. If you bowl in swingers, the wobble ball naturally goes away. 
that doesn't seem to completely match up 100%, but maybe 80, 85%. Uh, and that's certainly something that we have, that, that I have noticed um, of recent times. And it, sorry, not of recent times, over a long period. And that seems to match up with what bowlers have told me. As the wobble ball develops, it does appear like some bowlers have the ability to move it both ways. Now, whether those are just because those are players who could swing it both ways, I don't know. I think when you look at it, it still moves slightly away, but I don't know how much of uh, that you have to go into Hawkeye, whether that's an optical illusion. The problem with Hawkeye data is it can't actually tell us what a wobble ball is and what isn't a wobble ball, which is another fascinating part of wobble balls. We can't, I mean, let's be honest, we can't even tell which ones are on purpose and which ones are by accident. It's just if you see someone bowl about 30 in a row, you get the idea they're doing it on purpose. That's a frustrating ball. Keshav says, what did you make of Abra Ahmed? Also, um, Pakistan, why don't other teams back leg spinners in tests? I think of modern times, that's just been, a, uh, you know, something to do with the um, consistency, really, of leg spinners aren't, I, speak, I think, especially in the DRS era, I don't think leg spinners are as consistent landing the ball in the right place, uh, which means they don't keep the pressure on uh, quite as much. Bigger bats allows people to attack and take their best balls down a little bit more than in the past. But I think the biggest change is really just in T20 cricket has changed what leg spin is and i'm not sure there's as much of a crossover between those two skill sets um uh, as there may be for other bowlers and at the moment if you're a really good leg spinner i think you're just going to get gobbled up by um by t20 cricket and perhaps you're not developing the same way so i think that's the main reason as far as abra ahmed i, I worry at the moment i want to do a deeper dive into him uh, hoping you know he plays quite a few more tests over the next couple of weeks months whenever new zealand's because I want to do a really deep dive into him because I worry it doesn't look like to me he has a strong enough stock ball and generally in test cricket if you want a long career as a spinner your stock ball needs to be constantly threatening so that no one can get on top of you right at the moment that would be my main concern skill wise um, temperament wise uh, ability to land the ball all those sorts of things I think he's really exciting Priyanch says what about Josh Little in the IPL I think um, at the moment I still think he's got a little bit of development within him. I don't think he's a good enough death bowler right at the moment, um, but he is an IPL level talent. Uh, you know that level of pace, uh, skill that he has, the fact he can bowl around the wicket, all those things. I think he's definitely an IPL level bowler. Um, but if you're picking him this year, I think you might get some good games from him. But I also think you might get some really bad games. Um, so I think you want to pick him and think about him as a multi-year project would be how I would think about it. Yuvshant says, Cam Green's been hyped so much before the IPL auction. You've said that he hasn't played enough T20 cricket to find a role yet. Will he be another Odeon Smith? I mean, I think the bigger problem for Odeon Smith is I'm not sure what, what role Odeon Smith plays because he can't bowl more than two overs a game on average. I'm not sure when he's he has to bowl in the middle. So you then need a team that that can that can allow him to bowl two soft overs in the middle, but also has another bowler who can mop up the bowling at the other end. And then realistically, he can only bat in the last four overs. Um, and you have to be aware that you're going to have to play him for 14 games. And in three of those, he might make 200 runs at a strike rate of 400. And in the other 11 games, he might not make any runs at all. That's it. You need to plan a team around the concept of Odeon Smith. I don't think Cam Green's quite like that. I think Cameron Green is more one of, like one of those players where you know that you could throw him up the order. You have to question how many overs you can get out of him. But if you're just looking for two backup overs in your from your top six, he should be able to provide that. 
probably at eight and a half, nine and a half and over, but he should be able to provide that. The, my, my other worry is, is if you're making him open, there are so many players who can do a good job of opening. If he doesn't fire, um, yeah, you've had, you've probably spent a lot of money on a player who can't bowl four overs a game yet and doesn't really know what his T20 bowling profile is yet. Um, and who hasn't batted enough at the top of the order to be able to handle the world's best attacks generally. He's so good that I suppose you could take a punt on him. I think anyone spending a lot of money on Campon, Cam Green is taking a punt. Again, a little bit like going back to Josh Little, you might have to think about it as a multi-year thing. Um, of if you are, Especially if you're investing a lot of money. Perhaps the first year you just want him to play six or seven games, um, get used to conditions, uh, work out where he's best uh, useful for your bowling, um, and use him as a, I don't know, maybe a, as a temporary opener or a backup opener, but tell him we, you may not play the full year. He just needs to play more T20 cricket. I don't know how good he's going to be, but I'm worried he's going to be overpaid um, and struggle to perform that. And we'll see like a Tamal Mills situation where they're only like, well, he's no good. And then he disappears. I think that would be the wrong way to look at Cameron Green. If you want to know exactly how I would deal with him, if I if my owner was dead set on getting him and my coach and my general manager or whoever else, I'd be saying as an analyst, fine, can we get him into a T20 league so that he plays a full league before he gets there? And can we get him into a, a league where we know where he's playing a similar role to what we want him to play? That's all. I just want to see him play more cricket so he feels more confident when he's playing at the top level. Darren, don't you think India should have played T20 with different approach? Select players who hit the ball from ball one and select paces at 140 um, kilometers an hour. Well, go through my video series, Nitin. You will see, uh, I talked about how India can play the next I talk about selection on the video that comes out tomorrow. Not selection, but um, this kind of thing that you're talking about, the style. I think T20 players who hit the ball from ball one are better than T20 players who knock the ball around. Not shy in saying that. Um, the, the pace is a ball over 140 kilometers an hour. Other than Avesh Khan, if you look at who's available, Prashid Krishna and Umran Malik go for a lot of runs uh, in in um, when they bowl so far. If you're going to if you're going to have um, that sort of situation where you can attack, um, I think that makes a lot of sense. But um, as a current, it's about patterns, right? So I think as that currently stands, I don't think there is. Um, I, I'm not sure what you were saying makes the most sense when you look at the players I have available to them. What I would say is, Nitsen, have a look at my video tomorrow, and if you want to ask another question next week based on it, what I think you need to be able to do is have multiple different styles of playing. And the anchors is obviously something that they can move on from. Um, I think what you're saying is a little bit simplistic, only from the perspective of you need to look at actually the players they have available to them. But what you're actually saying is, you know, one way of playing T20 cricket. But I think there are multiple ways of um, India being good. And that's kind of what the video tomorrow is about. All right. I've just got one or two left. Uh, Oren says, best cricket biographies, autobiographies. I really like Akash Chopra's book from a couple of years ago. Eddie Cowan's another one that was really, really good. Biographies. I'm sure I've read biographies. I can't think of any. I, I tend to go towards the ones that talk about teams or tours um, more so um, or periods than I do biographies on players. I'm, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Um, and I'll just finish this with this from SBN. It's okay, we gave up the test captaincy. Yeah, I think this was bound to happen. I th think we're seeing a you know a transitional period of New Zealand cricket. We had that question earlier as well. I think with his elbow issue, he probably just wants to spend more time thinking about that. And I'm not sure, you know, I, we're getting to a point where 
I don't know how much longer he will actually be able to play the way that he wants to play. Um, and so if I was Ken Williamson, I would certainly be looking at ways to maximize my career if, if I wanted to keep playing. And I'm not sure it's not that captaincy is draining on that, but you know, anything where you're not focusing on, you know, how to support your body and your mind and everything else is probably not ideal. So, uh, I've got no problem with Ken Williamson giving up the captaincy there. I think he's more than done his due. Um, you know, how we look back on it compared to the Coney, Crow, Fleming, McCullum type eras is what quite interesting. I know the older New Zealand cricketers are not quite ready to say that this this New Zealand team was the best ever. I think it was the best ever. I'll try and get Jeremy Cody on a podcast one day where we can argue about it together. But but I do think from that perspective, um, uh, I think that, yeah, Williamson has um, moved a little bit. Um, uh, you know, to a point where I think he just needs to look after his body. You know, we, we see that sometimes with older players. You, the older you get, the more you have to do. do you, remember, you know, remember the Mashrafi Mortaza thing of how long it takes him to get out of bed. And, you know, um, there's a lot of older players that just take a long time to get strapped up and all those sorts of things. So I think from that perspective, um, it, you know, it makes sense for someone like Kane Williamson to move on a little bit. Anyway, sounds like I've got to go um, deal with my kids' vomit. Uh, please support all the 99.94 podcasts. Uh, check out the Indian series on YouTube if you haven't seen it already. Um, and Double Centuries, absolutely cracking. We, it's a great series we've got going on at the moment. This series is basically about um, people who bought cricket. Uh, first couple of episodes, we've done a prince and a businessman uh, who ended up with a cricket team in his own backyard. We've obviously got people like Stanford and Modi and Packer um, left to come. In fact, it'll probably be an entire series on Packer. Uh, but yeah, really, really interesting um, uh, series that we're putting together. So support that. But support all the um, 99.94 podcasts. South Africa did a ripping episode the other day on – what was it on? It was on oh past players and what happens and why South African past players don't seem to come back into the game. It's really interesting. But there's been some great episodes as well. Um, uh, Sri Lankan, the Sri Lankan podcast looked at their year in cricket as well. Just watch everything and support them. And if you want to follow up, I think we're going to do this, the Wagon Wheel, live from now on here on YouTube. So subscribe, bell icon, all that sort of stuff. Tell your friends and we'll hopefully be back same time next week. Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel on 99.94. Remember to download our app or just search for 99.94 where you find podcasts or on YouTube. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon, which also allows you to ask questions before anyone else and many other extras as well. There is a link in the show notes. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. This podcast is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great support team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapia producing podcasts, Maida Akam producing some of the shows and Makanda Banredi as the head of YouTube content. Sports Social Podcast Network.